It is Locked On NBA Playoff Preview Edition. The Locked On Podcast Network hosts have gotten together. We'll preview the Bucks and the Celtics, the Heat and the Sixers, the Rockets and the Wolves, and the Jazz and the Thunder. It's all coming up on today's edition of Locked On NBA. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Welcome to Locked On NBA. I'm David Locke, host of the Thursday edition of Locked On NBA. We're going to preview four of the eight series for you. We'll give you another four in the Friday podcast as well. We'll start in the Western Conference. We'll give you the Jazz and the Thunder. Eric G. of Locked On Thunder will join me. We'll then stay in the West with the number one seed Houston Rockets faces the eight seed Minnesota Timberwolves with Ben DeBose and Locked On Rockets and Colton Molesky of Locked On Wolves. Next stop, we'll go to the Eastern Conference where the Celtics get ready for the Bucks, and then the Heat and the Sixers get together as Locked On Heat hosts Wes Goldberg and David Ramil, the Tuesday hosts of Locked On NBA, join in with Locked On Sixers host Keith Pompey. It's all coming up. Let's get to it right now with the Western Conference preview start of the Jazz and the Thunder. And we joint crossover podcast with Eric G. Locked on Thunder. How are you, Eric? Fantastic, man. It was a historic night here in Oklahoma City last night. We may have seen Nick Collison's last game, and Paul George had his best game as a member of the Oklahoma City Thunder, was completely overshadowed by two other guys. And I think the Thunder might, might, might actually be ready for the playoffs. All right, so the question I asked in numerous other podcasts this year uh, to Kevin Pelton and others are, are the Thunder good? I guess the question to be asked now is, is this the best the Thunder have been? Probably. And the reason I say probably is I think you could go back in in December and towards the end of December, it looked like they were about to click and they had finally – started figuring out what everybody's role was and then January came around and they fell back to the pack and they just seemed to struggle with inconsistency all year long but at least at this point in the season not only is Russell Westbrook being Russell Westbrook but they're finally getting some consistent play off the bench with Jeremy Grant, Raymond Felton and Patrick Patterson and I got to say Felton's been consistent all year long but the other two guys have come along lately, so that it, it's a probably. It's not a definite 100%, but it's a probably because I don't know if all this maintains once they get started Sunday against Utah. If anything, so if the big picture is that they're better, what changed? I think it's just these guys getting used to playing with each other, which is – that's been the excuse all year long from the Thunder is – Guys couldn't figure out their role. They didn't have a summer to play together. They didn't have, you know, they, they only got to know each other during training camp. You can't really build a team then. Well, you've got 82 games. And the three guys we're talking about are seasoned veterans. They should have been able to figure it out long before now. I think Paul George was very uncomfortable because he became a catch-and-shoot guy. Carmelo Anthony, I don't know if he was so much uncomfortable. He's just older. And he's not as effective as, as he used to be. So it came down to Russ and PG and Russ having to figure out how much he needed to defer to both of these guys. And I think finally Russ just went Russ and PG had to figure out how to fit in with that. If I told you I didn't buy that and I just think that they are, this is who they are and that they have two high volume inefficient scorers 
And so this is who they are. They're a 48-win team. They're good. They're not great, despite the names, because they have two inefficient scores. What would you say to that? I'm not buying that. And the reason I'm not buying that is because these guys are too good to be as inefficient as they were all year long. And what's kind of worried me about this team is they've also seemed to live by this mantra of wait till the playoffs. Carmelo Anthony was echoing those sentiments a a couple of days ago. Well, if that's what you're going to live by, now you've got to show us. And and I'm sorry, but you're just, they're too talented, too good to be as up and down as they were all season, season long. The other thing I like about them coming into the playoffs is because they are a veteran laden team and not just with those three guys. I think that gives them a, a bit of an advantage over Utah. And honestly, when I look at them uh, up and down through the West, the only team I don't think they can play with in the entire Western Conference is the Portland Trailblazers. Everyone else, I think at worst, they, they give them a heck of a series. So a sign that maybe they've gotten better is that post-All-Star break in clutch play, they're 11-6, and 10th in the league offensively, 10th in the league defensively. Pre-All-Star break, they were poor in clutch situations. They, I think, were, again, right about 10th offensively. Uh, actually, they were 15th offensively pre-All-Star break, but defensively, they were 26th in the league uh, in clutch situations. Is that a And they were 13 and 16 overall. It, is that late-game defense being better, even without Andre Robertson, a sign of them getting better, or did Billy change how he was using guys? Yeah, I think it's just it's just getting better and learning how to play without Andre Robertson. They relied on him so much, and the great thing for Andre is, is people who follow the NBA and may have sort of dismissed Andre Robertson and what his meaning meaning was to this team finally got to see how big big a part of it is he is. The the other thing that that happened was is you bring in a guy like Corey Brewer who is not the defensive juggernaut that an Andre Robertson is but certainly helps on the offensive end and can play defense as well. Plus Paul George. Paul George, we all know that he's a good defensive player. He's gotten better uh, here over these last few weeks. It's just, it's been, as as sickening as it's going to sound, it's just been an an 82-game growing process for the Oklahoma City Thunder. And I think, unfortunately for fans, they're not a finished product and probably won't be that quote-unquote finished product unless these guys stay together one more year. And I'm thinking January at the earliest of next season is might when you might be able to call them a finished product. Yeah, that's if they stay together. You're unfazed by the fact that the Jazz have won 29 and lost six. I'm... I'm unfazed because the playoffs are a completely different monster, as cliche as that sounds. And the one thing that I know about Russell Westbrook and Steven Adams, for sure, and I'm about to find out with Carmelo Anthony, who has not been in the playoffs in five years, but I think you could throw Paul George into this category, is the stage just doesn't get too big for them. They know how to perform on the biggest stages. There's I, this team has always had this this quiet confidence about them. I think you could even chalk it up to overconfidence. But they will come in. I don't think there's anybody in this division that scares them outside of Portland, which I mentioned, just because I think the Blazers are, are in the Thunder's head, having swept them this year. Uh, the one guy that, that worries me, the, the guy that there's two guys that worry me on the Jazz. I worry about Rudy Gobert 
and whether or not he can get the best of Steven Adams, but I think Adams can play physical and get under Gobert's skin. And then, then there's Donovan Mitchell. I don't know that there's anybody on the Thunder that can guard this guy. And I imagine him to put – I would think that he's going to put up a, a, a ton of points in this game. But it's the experience where these guys were last year without Kevin Durant and they still finished sixth in the West, I just – this seems like they're, I mean, this seems like their time of year is the postseason where things slow down a little bit and have a tendency to get more physical. I'm just playing devil's advocate for the sake of the conversation. So no stage gets too big for Russell Westbrook, who shot 39% for the field last year in the playoffs and 26% from three, who had an effective field goal percentage of 43%, which would have been the worst offensive player in all of the NBA last year, whose career in the playoffs is a 41% field goal, 29% for three, and a 44.6% effective field goal percentage. Isn't there actually a chance that Russell Westbrook's game is so unique that in the regular season teams aren't prepared for it, but that his weaknesses get accentuated in the playoffs? I don't think it's so much – I wouldn't call it necessarily a weakness with Russell. The thing that Russell does so well is you can you can throw out the stats once it comes to clutch time. And, and I'll be the first to say I hate Russell Westbrook shooting from beyond the arc. I don't want him shooting from beyond the arc until it gets to the last few minutes of the game. And for some reason, Russ has a knack for making them then. The other thing I like about this team team this year is now that Russell Westbrook has two proven three-point shooters, and I I'm, understand that I'm almost saying this looking up to heaven, praying that Russell Westbrook is hearing exactly what I'm saying, you can defer and pass to them. You don't have to be the complete total clutch guy. And I don't think he ever used Kevin Durant as a crutch. Um, I think he got used to playing without Kevin Durant, but I think he knows now what it's like having two guys on his side that you can dish out to, or at least I hope he does. And I think that that's going to, that's going to help Russell Westbrook. Plus I'm anxious to see how healthy a guy like Steven Adams is in the playoffs in last year. I don't think Adams was healthy, but this year I think he is. And he's a guy I look to be huge huge coming up in this series with Utah if the Thunder are going to win. We'll dig more into Steve and Adams' role with the Rudy Gobert matchup. We'll talk a little bit more about what happens when the Thunder have the ball. We'll talk a little bit more what happens when the Jazz uh, have the ball as well. By the way, I just want to point out one note just because I like numbers and I happen to note prepared for this. Russell Westbrook in the clutch in the playoffs, 30% shooter. Over the last two years, one of 17 from three. And for his career, 6 of 53 from 3 in the clutch time in the playoffs. Just a note. All right, everyone's calling me a Westbrook hater. That's not true. I can't wait to watch him. He's incredible. His energy level he plays with is beyond reason. It's absolutely superhuman. Those are just facts. Well, that wraps up Locked On Jazz and Locked On Thunder's preview, short preview. We do an extended conversation, about 30 minutes. If you want more on that series, go to either Locked On Jazz or Locked On Thunder. Still coming, we're going to talk Wolves-Rockets, Heat, and the Sixers, and Bucks and the Celtics. All right, let's go to Western Conference stop number two, Locked On Rockets host Ben DeBose, who's joined by Colton Molesky of Locked On Wolves. It's the one-seed Rocket and the eight-seed Wolves. All right, Ben DuBose here of Locked on Rockets, joined by Colton Molesky, host of Locked on Timberwolves, to talk about, well, I, I don't know if I would call it a rivalry, but at least for the next 
four-plus games, it may feel like one. First overall seed in the West, the Houston Rockets. Now we know who the eighth overall seed in the West is for the first time since 2004. It's the Minnesota Timberwolves who are back in the playoffs. So for this segment, I'm the host of Locked on Rockets. Colton, you are the host of Locked on Timberwolves. Your thoughts on, as a longtime follower of the Timberwolves, what it felt like just to get back in the postseason and to be in that heavyweight fight late in a tight game with Denver that could have gone either way at the end of regulation and overtime. Wow. The, the last time that I watched the Timberwolves team head to the playoffs, I was nine years old then. Nine. So this is this is a pretty crazy experience for me right now. I'm happy that the Timberwolves are in the playoffs. I'm really happy for the Timberwolves fan base. I think you could tell from the festive atmosphere. It, it, went, it was getting kind of quiet there. As the, as the Denver Nuggets made a push in the fourth quarter, Jamal Murray was really good late in that game to keep the Nuggets in it and push overtime. But you can tell from most of that game, there's just this sense of excitement around this Timberwolves. And it's, it's been there the entire season. It's been there around Jimmy Butler. So good to have him back and just really to see some postseason play for the first time in 13 seasons for the Timberwolves franchise. What do you take out of the the final minutes regulation overtime in that game? It was so weird as obviously not a Wolves diehard, but I've watched them all four times against the Rockets and have followed them a lot throughout the year because Carl Anthony Towns, Jimmy Butler, it's an interesting team with a lot of talent. And you tend to think of them generally as a much more offensive-minded team. Their defense, especially against the Rockets, is what's lagged. Rockets scored 120-plus in three of the four games all wins. At the end of the Denver game, it was almost the opposite of what you would expect from Minnesota, and you can kind of look at it, in my opinion, as glass half empty or glass half full. The negative is that all these playmakers on Minnesota, the offense got stagnant, and they didn't really seem to create their own shots. Maybe they were a little bit nervous based on the moment. The flip side, Denver's a very good offensive team, and Denver did not get very many good looks at all. So if you were pessimistic about the offense the Minnesota showed, I think maybe you take some something positive from the defensive showing that a quality offense team in Denver did not get many good looks down the stretch of that game. And as you mentioned, the only shots they really were able to make were because Jamal Murray just somehow went into hero mode and made some just incredible looks. Well, if you're looking at the offense for both of these teams, really, not some great shooting or not some great looks for either offense. You saw the Timberwolves have some uh, – Poor isolation plays at the end of regulation for that basketball game. Not a lot of great off-ball movement from the offense of the Timberwolves. We were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but I just really wanted to see more action. I know these guys are tired of playing a ton of minutes for the starters on both sides, but I really wanted to see more off-ball movement for the Timberwolves. And then on the other side, crazy how the game comes down with so many young guys on both sides of this crazy how the game kind of is defined by the play of a wily veteran in Todd Gibson and what he's able to do against the young Jokic and how he comes up big in this game and just a phenomenal performance from him. Can't tell you how much he has meant to this team and how much he has done over the course of the season, really manifesting himself in the end of the season as he comes up with a great defensive performance to finish out the Timberwolves year. What do you think about Jimmy Butler, the first Two games coming off a torn meniscus actually suffered the last Minnesota-Houston game back at Toyota Center in Houston late February. Played just three games. First two played in the 20s, but 
boy, the season finale, he was a hero. 31 points, 42 minutes, played in all of overtime. Seemed like he was running out of gas, but he still found a way late in the game. You mentioned his drive. Is he all the way back, or is there still something for him to prove when it comes to the knee, the conditioning? Where are you at on Jimmy after seeing him for three games? I think he's all the way back, and I think that he's the best defender since Kawhi might be out for the playoffs, and it looks like they are, the Spurs don't even know when he'll be back still. I think that he is now the best defender, at least in the Western Conference side of things. And so I think that he's an enormous piece to have back. I think that it's going to be really helpful, too. You saw what Jokic did from the three-point line against the Timberwolves in the final game of the season. I think it's going to be really helpful to have him on James Harden and the best three-point shooter on the opposite team. Obviously, the Rockets have a lot of shooters from outside, but the best three-point shooter on the Rockets team is going to be somebody that has the lineup against Jimmy Butler. That's definitely helpful for the Timberwolves. And I, I think that he is going to show really big. I think he's going to take it as a personal challenge to have to try and take on James Harden in this one. I could see that. And, of course, Jimmy Butler from Tomball, suburb of Houston, you know that he is going to be very motivated for this particular series. Final question I want to ask you, and actually this can be a two-way. I'll start with mine, and the question is going to be X-Factor that's not a star player. By that, I mean anyone can look at these matchups and say, look, James Harden, Chris Paul, Jimmy Butler, Carl Anthony Towns, these are phenomenally talented basketball players. We could even throw Clint Capella and Andrew Wiggins in there. We all know that. Someone that's not a plan A or even necessarily a plan B for your team that could be a big, I would say, difference maker in this matchup. For me, I mentioned him earlier, it's going to be Ryan Anderson, in my opinion, for Houston, you saw that a lot, the first four matchups. Uh, now, to be fair, Ryan has not played much on the stretch of the year with a sprained ankle. He's going to have to prove that he's healthy. But if he is, Minnesota led by Tom Thibodeau, a little more of a traditional team than others in the West. So that stretch four and stretch five, actually, because Ryan's primarily been playing the five of late, really made a difference in those first games against Minnesota, a team that likes to play physical. So for me, from the Rockets' side, especially when you go back, as you were saying, I actually asked you about the three-point defense. We went into both the three-point defense and the three-point offense. The twos versus threes thing was going to come up a lot in terms of Minnesota taking more twos, Houston taking more threes. Can you make the math work? And a big part of that equation, it's not just going to be, you know, the stars, James, Eric Gordon, Chris Paul, etc., but it's the role players like Ryan Anderson. From your side, who's the guy that you think might match up well for the Rockets or maybe needs to to play well, at the very least, to make this a longer series than some people might think? I like this. I like this a lot. I'm going to go a little deeper than uh, than any of the starters. Tyus Jones is my guy. That I would like to see him not only play more minutes in the playoffs, but I think maybe people anticipate from a bench player on a Tibbs team. But I want to see him play over 20 minutes a game and – he was one of the best guys in the NBA in, in assist-to-turnover ratio, great around the basketball, both at playmaking for teammates and at grabbing steals, uh, making defensive plays. Off the bench, if he can average in this series somewhere around eight points and then like five assists and four steals, something like that, somewhere where he's getting the ball a lot from, offense, from defense to offense and getting the transition game going for the Timberwolves, especially that second unit. And you saw him a little bit at the end of the season playing with guys like Teague, guys like Crawford, guys like Butler, 
when he's playing with those guys and getting the transition game going, I think it's big for this Timberwolves team, especially when you're resting maybe some starters like Gibson and Town, and you have a bunch of second guys out there getting the transition game going against the Rockets. I think that will be huge for them. So Tyus Jones is my guy who needs to be that spark off the bench for the Timberwolves. I like that. I could see it because the Timberwolves probably need to go a little smaller in this series to try and match up with the speed and three-point shooting of the Rockets. Also, a funny little storyline, one of the only times I have ever seen the great Adrian Wojnarowski head faked was three years ago when Tyus Jones ended up getting drafted by Minnesota. Actually, a couple of picks before that, he was supposed to be, according to Woj, drafted by the Rockets, and it actually ended up being a misdirection. The Rockets ended up taking Sam Decker instead, and Sam Decker no longer even in Houston because he was part of the trade to the Clippers for Chris Paul. But maybe there's such a thing as a hashtag Tyus Jones revenge game because, he, according to Woj, he's supposed to get drafted by the Rockets. We'll have to wait and see. But in general, even just from an X's and O's standpoint, I think that's probably a good call because the Timberwolves probably need something to go a little differently in the three-point department and the speed than it did in the first four matchups of this series when they lost all four. If you want more on that series, go to Ben DeBose's Locked on Rockets. He has huge guests every single week on Locked on Rockets, does an amazing job. And Colton Molesky, you can feel the excitement of what's going on in Minnesota as they're back in the playoffs. What's coming up next is the Eastern Conference. All right, our first stop in the Eastern Conference is the number two-seeded Celtics against the seventh-seeded Bucks. Eric Name hosts Locked on Bucks, one of our most popular shows, really connected well with that Milwaukee fan base. And John Corrales does amazing work with Locked on Celtics. Let's get that preview. This is Eric Name from Locked on Bucks. And I am John Corrales from Locked on Celtics, getting ready for the first-round matchup between the Boston Celtics and the Milwaukee Bucks. And, hey, this is the matchup. I want it. I think the Celtics can, even with all of their injuries, get past the Bucks in the first round. It's funny that you say that because I think this is the matchup that every Bucks fan wanted as well. So I think it's it's kind of an interesting spot for both of these teams. Why was it that, as I hear you say that, why was it that you wanted the Bucks? So from my perspective, I think the Celtics injuries play into why the Bucks fans wanted the Celtics. You could look at all the possible opponents for, for Boston. Miami, Milwaukee, Washington. I definitely didn't want Washington because of their backcourt. Miami was okay, but I think the Bucks just have the worst defense of the three teams. And the Celtics offense is having a little bit of trouble to score without Kyrie and without Marcus Smart. It's funny to say that about Marcus Smart from people who don't follow the Celtics regularly, but they are a plus when he's on the floor, and he is a really good point guard, even though his shooting is notoriously bad. So I think the Celtics are going to need a little bit of help to get the ball in the basket, and that Bucks defense, to me, is going to be the thing that helps. I don't think that's crazy at all. Um, if you're looking at this Bucks team, uh, you're going to start with the problems as the defense. Nothing is really, has really changed since Joe Prunty took over. Uh, they're pretty much running the same schemes pretty much giving the same amount of effort and defensively they've just looked like a mess this entire season and that's I would assume that holds up in the playoffs especially against a Brad Stevens coach team so I don't think that is uh I don't think that's the worst thought process uh to go through as a Celtics fan well that's good that's good to hear that I'm on the right path for once I'm on the right path (laughs) so for Milwaukee I guess my biggest fear going into this would be obviously Giannis Antetokounmpo. He is probably going to win a couple of games. I want to know how confident are you from the Milwaukee perspective that Giannis being the obvious best player in this series, 
How confident are you that he can steal a couple of games for the Bucks and maybe kind of turn this series? I mean, to me, that's the that's the biggest thing. And me and Frank Madden, my partner on Lockdown Bucks, had a huge—I shouldn't say huge argument because I don't know that we have huge arguments, but we disagreed on this last night. That I thought, you know, you have Giannis, you have the best player in the series, and the the age old NBA Maximus have the best player in the series, and you should win it. And I think undoubtedly he is. So I don't really have a. A lot of concerns about Giannis, about his ability to to get loose in the playoffs. Uh, the Celtics have certainly done some interesting things against him this year. Uh, you've seen multiple defenders. You've seen, I guess, kind of multiple uh, primary defenders. Obviously, there's going to be a huge team scheme, and you're looking at the best defense in the league. So they're going to do all of those things right. But at the same time, I just don't know if there's really – a team, a player, anyone that can slow down Giannis for seven consecutive games. Like there's going to be games where he gets loose, and uh, I- I've felt I've felt good about saying that this series goes to six, maybe seven. Just uh, to me, primarily behind Giannis's brilliance, like his transcendence should get you a, a couple wins, and it helps that maybe the bu- the rest of the Bucks roster isn't as sorry as it's been in the past, uh, but. To me, the big thing is best player in the series, Giannis Adetokounmpo, and there's been times Horford at times has given them some problems, and I know they've sometimes when the Celtics go small, that kind of messes with his head a little bit because he's a little bit worried about getting offensive fouls. But for the most part, he's been able to have some some really nice games against the Celtics, and I assume that will continue in the playoffs. Well, we will assume that because he's awesome, and as a pure basketball guy, I am a huge Giannis fan, not just because I'm Greek but because he's awesome, and I wouldn't mind seeing him for seven games. I do think, though, the Celtics have ways to neutralize him in the series as much as you can neutralize a talent like that. Two things, you play five out, the Celtics, and like you said, going small. They're kind of going small out of necessity sometimes, and I think they can play that five-out style where Giannis has to go make decisions and has to guard the perimeter a little bit more than he might like to, and that's going to open up some things behind him offensively for the Celtics. And the other thing the Celtics have toyed around with towards the end of the season a lot more is a zone. And that zone defense is going to be uh, really interesting to see how Milwaukee handles that because while Milwaukee takes and makes a lot of two-point shots, they're not really great at the three-point shot. So I don't mind them trying to shoot over the top of a zone. I'm sure Chris Middleton can go out and get hot and other guys can go get hot and you don't want to tempt fate too much but if you're trying to neutralize Giannis Antetokounmpo on the offensive end the Celtics have busted out that zone I'm sure Milwaukee's going to try to get ready for it but unless you faced it a lot and with that Celtics length up front they'll put Jason Tatum at the top of it a lot and so I, I just don't know how he'll handle that and that could be one of those little wrinkles that could be the key to this series for the for the Celtics. I, I'm curious that that's a it's an interesting idea to think about because Earlier, let's see, that's almost two or three weeks ago now at this point. The Spurs played zone against the Bucks for, a, say, a six to seven minute stretch in the second quarter. And the Bucks largely did struggle with it. They, the first couple possessions, they didn't really know what to do with it. They had some ugly turnovers. They weren't getting Giannis into the middle of it and they kind of struggled with it. And then after a timeout, they kind of got through it and were getting some good shots, but it was kind of exactly what you just talked about. They were getting good shots. 
they just weren't going in. And a large part of that is maybe not having the best shooters out on the floor and maybe not having those guys used to being catch-and-shoot, knockdown threats. So I think that'll be fascinating. But I guess overall, essentially what we're saying here is Giannis versus Celtics, right? Like how Basically. how do they try to control him and how do they try to slow him down? That's it. That's what it boils down to. So I'm going to say my official prediction is going to be Celtics in six. How do you feel about this series? I feel the exact same way. Um, I just think this Bucks team has been too disorganized throughout this season. They're too sloppy. Uh, they just aren't th- – those other parts just I don't think are going to be good enough. No matter how transcendent or brilliant Giannis is, I don't think it'll be enough. So I would say Celtics in six as well. All right. We're in agreement. So that's the quickie Celtics-Bucks preview for round one. I am John Corrales of Locked On Celtics. You can find me on Twitter at RedsArmy underscore John. And I am Eric Name of Locked On Bucks, and you can find me on Twitter at Eric underscore Name. Thanks so much, guys. For more on the Bucks, go to Eric Name and Frank Madden and their regular show, Locked On Bucks, and more on the Celtics, John Corrales and Locked On Celtics. You get more on that whole series coming up as well. That should be a lot of fun one with Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Bucks. All right, our final stop today is the Heat and the Sixers, the red-hot Philadelphia 76ers host, Locked On Sixers host Keith Pompey, Philadelphia Inquirer writer, joined by the Locked On Heat crew David Ramil and Wes Goldberg. Wes Goldberg and David Ramil host the Tuesday edition of Locked On NBA. You can get that as well. But here is the preview of the Heat and the Sixers. Welcome to a special crossover edition of Locked On Heat and Locked On Sixers. My name is Wes Goldberg, and I'm here with my Locked On Heat co-host David Ramil and host of Locked On Sixers, Keith Pompey. We're going to take a look at how the Heat and Sixers match up in the 3-6 series in the East. Both of these teams split the season series, with each team winning their home games. Keith, after the Sixers beat the Heat in the first two games, the Heat beat the Sixers in the final two matchups of the regular season. Is it as simple to say it's just because the games were played in Miami? What was the difference between the Sixers' losses and then the wins against the Heat. You know, I, I don't think it was just as simple as saying that the games were in Miami because it could be, it could easily have been three to one if Dwayne Wade wouldn't have missed that three pointer at the end of the second game. Um, I, I think mm. that you know the difference is like, I mean, I, I, you have to give each team the home court advantage, so to speak. But you know, at the same time, I just think that these squads are evenly matched because for the most part, all the games went down to the wire. You know, and, and I think that these two teams are evenly matched and, and, and just big players made big plays at the end of the games. So Philadelphia offers a ton of challenging matchups, especially when it comes to their versatile stars, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Uh, David, we saw that the Heat used both James Johnson and Justice Winslow to guard Simmons. How do you see the Heat guarding uh, the likely rookie of the year? Well, I, I think that James Johnson will be the natural matchup uh, to go against Ben Simmons, to be honest with you. Um, I think it was effective in their la- last matchup uh, in the fourth game of the season series. Uh, and James Johnson has shown the ability to stay with larger, you know, passing, playmaking uh, forwards, uh, LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo. So I would assume that Johnson starts off guarding Simmons and then Justice Winslow off the bench would come in and contribute on that end. Uh, and I think it's a good matchup in Miami's favor, to be honest with you. As good as Simmons has been, you know, again, likely the rookie of the year, I think Johnson has the speed and strength to, to make things difficult 
for Simmons, despite the fact that he's giving up a couple of inches to Ben there. But I still think that James is experienced enough. He's, he's savvy enough and he knows how to get in position. So I think it's going to be a matter of whether or not he can avoid foul trouble as well. But for the most part, it's a good matchup for Miami. I think there's an interesting matchup there too with Josh Richardson, right? Josh Richardson, one of the lead league, the league leaders in steals. Uh, in the last time these teams played, Josh Richardson uh, guarded Dario Saric, but when you're when in that in that position, he was a lot of times off the ball, sort of playing free safety, so to speak, trying to jump passing lanes and stuff like that. Uh, but Keith, I know we're talking a lot about right now how the Heat are going to defend the Sixers, and a lot of attention is going to be on that because of obviously guys like Simmons and Embiid. But is there somebody on the Heat that presents an especially challenging matchup for the Sixers on that end? You know, I, I would have to say Dwayne Wade. And, and, and the reason why, you know, I know Dwayne Wade isn't the Dwayne Wade of like five years ago, but it just seems like against the Sixers, they typically have a tough time against a scorer off the bench. Like if you have a guy who can just come in and give you some buckets, the Sixers tend to struggle against that. Now they haven't gone up against that really during their 16-game winning streak. And then also a problem is what the, the, another problem the Sixers have is basically Robert Covington will probably guard D-Wade when D-Wade comes in the game. But a lot of times during switches, they would put Dario Sarge and Ben Simmons on them, and they basically struggled. Another problem for the Sixers right now with Joel Embiid not being able to play at least the first game is who's going to guard Hassan Whiteside. You know, Whiteside, you know, dominated Embiid in the, in the last game they played. So Embiid's the best defender. He's saying that he could be a uh, defensive player of the year. You lose a lot when he goes out. So to me, that's a key matchup, at least for game one. Who's going to guard Wade and who's going to defend Whiteside? Are they likely to start Amir Johnson in Embiid's place in game one? Yes, Amir Johnson is, is, is going to start in, in game one. You know, they, they keep holding, saying they're holding out hope that Embiid will come back. I doubt it. Um, and then you have another guy in Rashawn Holmes, who's the backup center. But he's kind of like more like a power forward. He's a 6'9 guy who's really athletic. And then Ersan Ilovasova, who is the backup um, power forward. Sometimes they like to go small ball and they like to play him at the center position. I just don't see them at this particular time having anyone who can just defend Whiteside. I, I think this is probably the worst matchup for the Sixers the, because you look at how versatile Miami is, Miami is and their ability to match up with almost any team and, and how experienced they are, obviously, which is not something that Philadelphia has as far as playoff experience. If the Heat are going to win this series, they're going to have to win, I think, at least one of the first two games that are in Philadelphia after that, the 76ers could get rattled. The other, the flip side of that is if the 76ers come out and they're able to beat Miami, especially in game one with or without Embiid, um, they could build confidence early on and say, you know what, we don't really need experience. We have talent. We're just better than these guys. But if Miami is able to come out and beat them early on, I think that's going to be a key to my – if Miami wins the series, they're going to have to win one of those first two games. David, is there – is there a key to victory that the Heat need to have in order to win this series? For me, I think it's it's limiting an X factor. I think uh, the Embiid-Whiteside matchup could be a wash. I think the Simmons-Johnson one could be uh, an evenly one, uh, evenly matched one as well. 
So to me, it's it's preventing a guy like Sharich from going off or or JJ Reddick having an explosive night. Um, you know, Covington, I'm not so sure that he's going to have one of those explosive nights. Although he can be des- definitely uh, a legitimate scorer during the series. But I think it's limiting that X factor and making sure that uh, either one of those players, like Sharich or or, uh, or Reddick, doesn't go off on a particularly productive night, and and making sure that Miami stays with them defensively. Keith, how can they? How can the Sixers leverage their talent to overcome that lack of playoff experience to win this series? You know that's going to be tough. I mean, you, they're going to have to defend. I mean, excuse me, depend a lot on JJ Reddick. I mean, JJ Reddick has played in you know, 88 playoff games. That's by far the most on the team. He started in 48. And the funny thing is he started in 48. Marco Bellinelli is is second on the team with playing in 48. So that's going to be tough. And, you know, the the thing about J.J. Redding, if I'm the Miami Heat, I'm going to try to run him off the spot as much as possible and force someone else to beat me. And when you have a young team that does not have a Joel Embiid, at least in the first game, you know, the team could get rattled because this is going to be something different that they're, than, than they're used to. They haven't played in the playoff game. So, you know, it's just going to be tough, man. I, I think they're going to have to depend on Reddick a lot. But if I'm Miami, I know I'm going to try to make it as tough as possible for Reddick. For David Ramel and Keith Pompey, I'm Wes Goldberg. Thanks for listening. More on that conversation, stop by Locked On Sixers with Keith Pompey and Locked On Heat with David Ramil and Wes Goldberg. More coming to you in our next edition of Locked On NBA. We've previewed four. We've got four to go on what's going to be an incredible NBA playoffs to your daily NBA national look, bite-sized, a little long today, but regularly bite-sized look on the NBA. It's Locked On NBA.